This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, I've told you before, one of my favorite shows is The Sopranos, one of my favorite shows of all time. I don't think there are many shows that are better than that. And recently, I rewatched the entire series, and you really grow to appreciate how well acted it is, uh, how great the writing is, and uh, really just what a spectacular production it was way ahead of its time. And uh, my wife just watched the series for the first time. She loved it, flipped out as well. One of my great joys uh, over the last few years has been, been being able to befriend one of the stars of that show, and it so happens he's something of a renaissance man. He's not just an actor. He's a novelist. He's a little bit of an expert when it comes to sports, and he is a, a trained chef who cooks to beat the band. We thought maybe we'd uh, tap into his expertise this morning in a few different areas. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome actor, novelist, sports enthusiast, cook, and probably five or six other hats that I have uh, neglected to mention that he wears, the one and only Joe Ganascoli. Joe, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning, Frankie boy. But I'm going to start calling you Frankie the father from now on. <laughs> I'll take it. I, hey, you know a thing or two about fatherhood, don't you? Yeah, well, just a thing. But uh, congratulations, <laughs> as always, to you and your wife. Thank you very much. And- you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, most people probably know you from The Sopranos. Uh, you played uh, Vito Spadafore, a tremendous character, especially later in the series. And I, I was talking about uh, the series and rewatching all these episodes with my brother recently. And he said, uh, hey, that actor Joe Ganiscoli, there was that one season where he lost all that weight. Did he lose that for the show or did he lose it in real life and then they wrote the show around it? I, I said I would ask you the next time we spoke, so I'm asking you. The latter is correct. I had dropped it um, because I had wanted to. Um, it was time to get back in shape, and um, uh, they, they like, like they did with a lot of characters, whatever things that happen in your, your life off screen, they incorporate into your character. So um, that's what happened. Is is that the story with the limp that you do in season six? There are a bunch of scenes, a bunch of episodes where you're limping. That wasn't a limp that you put on for the show, was it? No, no. I uh, as soon as I met my demise, I uh, went for double hip replacement, and I did that the same day. Um, my uh, every step I took was anybody uh, listening knows that have uh, hip or knee, but um, my head double hips were. Uh, I was in tremendous pain. And so, and so I, when I was filming, I had to do maybe eight, ten Advils a day and just to get through the day. So every every step was like uh, torture. Jeez. Mm, uh, well, and you're doing well now, though, thankfully. Oh, since the uh, replacement, I played golf. Um, I can't tell you how many times. I played probably 200 rounds this year. And uh, I walked the course and... Um, carry my clubs so there you go i guess i should have known you were a golfer when you agreed to do an interview this early but i came across one article (laughs) that uh that said that that golf actually helped save your life tell me about that Uh, why and how did you become such a, a golf enthusiast well um i i grew up playing a lot of baseball and hockey um growing up in brooklyn and um, my brother played, my father played, and I sort of dabbled. But I truly got to appreciate it, 
the game, again, once they did my hips, I found out I could. And I did a movie, actually, I was playing golf called The College Road Trip with Martin Lawrence. And in between takes, I started swinging the club. And I was like, wow, I could make, you know, a full turn now. So uh, after the movie, I went out and um, got clubs and started playing. And like millions of other people, I became addicted with the game because it's so challenging. And um, I, I mean, I like challenges. So uh, I became um, uh, obsessed with the game and I played probably too much. Uh, like 18 holes every day, walking wow. a course. I go to a course, you know, in my where I live in um, Long Island, and um, it just became, you know, get up four o'clock, you know, put your name in at five, and out by five thirty, six, and in four and a half hours, you walked, uh, I don't know, five six miles up the hill, you know, with me, especially with my game, it's not straight, it's all zigzag. Even after playing that many days of uh, 18 holes, do you're still zigging and zagging? <laughs> yeah, always zig and zag. You know, it just takes it just takes one hole to blow up your game, and and that's the uh, the problem. You know, uh, talking with uh, Joe Ganascoli, uh, best known probably for playing Vito on The Sopranos. He's also written a terrific book, a novel, and uh, he's also a pretty accomplished chef. Uh, go as far as The Sopranos go, uh, Joe. What is it about that show that's so special? As I alluded to, there's whole new generations of young people rediscovering that show, and they love it just as much as I did when I watched it 15, 20 years ago. What is it about that show that makes it so timeless? First of all, I think that when people are watching it now, uh, and especially young kids, it really holds up the, the production values. Uh, it doesn't look uh, aged and... Um, as always with anything, it's always about the written word. And um, um, the Americans have always been enamored with the whole mob thing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, since, I guess, the beginning of film, right? And so sure. we grew up, I grew up, you know, James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart and, you know, the early Bowery boys and those kind of guys, for whatever reason, you know, the, the clothes, the, the the women, the, uh, the the cars, so it just carried through. And with the Sopranos, it was always about the uh, to me the writing and the comedy, and the one-liners, and of course the acting, mm. and um, and uh, it just it hits home for so many people because they all knew people like that. They had an uncle like that. They know a guy like that. Um, and then they knew, you know, it wasn't just mob, but it was that, you know, family and, and marriage and uh, therapy and sure. all sorts of things. I'd say one of the actors on that show who's probably best known for doing other things was Peter Bogdanovich, who plays Melfi's uh, therapist, Elliot. Uh, he uh, just passed away recently, an incredibly accomplished filmmaker and a guy who's uh, very much a lover of cinema. You strike me as a guy that's sort of a very much a lover of cinema. I know you, you didn't necessarily have any scenes with Peter Bogdanovich, but did you get to know him at all, either during the production of that show or afterwards? I did not. I never met him. I'm sorry to say. And oddly enough, Frank, I I don't watch a lot of movies. I don't watch. Really? Uh, yeah. I I can't tell you the last time I went to go see a film. Maybe it's because I'm always disappointed. Um, 
you know, I, I look forward to hear you read about it. You look forward to it and you waited for anticipation and then you're disappointed. You're like, that was, that's it. That, that's what it was. And then my, I lose interest. And same thing with TV. I, I, I don't have a lot of patience for, I guess, the writing or the acting or, you know, the believability of about it. So I lose uh, interest in it. So I'm not, I'm not a real big guy. I mean, classic films, you know, and, and the um, and the ones that we've all watched, I mean, those I appreciate, but um, I'm not. I'm mm. not a big uh, cinephile. Now, uh, you are an accomplished culinary artist. Uh, you used to have a restaurant in Brooklyn, Soup as Art, which people still talk about. You've worked in some of the most notorious food cities around the country, New Orleans, L.A., of course, here in New York. What were you first? Were you an actor first that uh, went into cooking professionally, or were you a cook first that then uh, went into acting? I was a, a cook first. I was uh, in St. John's, and not um, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Uh, I was bored. And so I dropped out, and for some reason, I didn't come from a big cooking family. I didn't, um, it wasn't a lot of food growing up. It was just something I was attracted to, the creativity creativity of it and so one of my first jobs was working in manhattan with one of the founders uh, he had a restaurant the founders of david cookies and that was on 54th and second and it was probably the height of nouvelle cuisine which was early 80s and um i i uh, i enjoyed it because it wasn't working in you know the neighborhood italian restaurant or pizzeria um it was sort of stuff that i've never you know, been around and hmm. knew about, you know, you know, pâtés, making fresh pâté at uh, 20 years old was, uh, I, I found it intriguing. Sure. So I continued to work from restaurant to restaurant. It came a time where I was going to either go study at the CIA and uh, up in New Hyde Park or um, work in restaurants and read and learn and make as, and, and work as many restaurants as I can. And David said, David Liederman said, Best experience is working in restaurants. You're not going to teach you that in school. And that's what I decided to do. And I went from restaurant to restaurant, working two or three jobs sometimes around the clock. Um, that's what I did. Uh, lest anyone think you were toying with uh, joining the intelligence community, when you use the term CIA, that's the Culinary Institute of America, right? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, just making sure. So how did you make the transition for people that haven't followed your career into acting uh, 30 years ago? So uh, I was working at a restaurant in Manhattan called Jack's on 73rd and Lex, and I had the good friendship of, uh, I had the good, what's the word? I fortune. had the good uh, fortune. fortune. That's it, thank you. Of meeting a fellow Staten Islander like yourself, uh, Tim Kelleher, and um, close friend to this day, he was a waiter there, and um, he had a theater company and said, uh, we became friends, and he said, you know, I'm doing this play, you know, it was off-Broadway, you'd be right for this part, why don't you come audition? And um, I did, I, I got the part, and I did the um, the off-Broadway uh, play, and I liked it, and I said, listen, I kind of like this, but what should I do next, how do I follow him? And he said to go study with his teacher, and I did that for about a year and a half, <clears throat> I didn't really get much out of it, um, but I enjoyed working and watching this guy teach. He was sort of out of his mind, and uh, I got him out of the restaurant business, 
And that lasted about a year and a half, and I was tired of being broke and uh, got back into the restaurant business, stopped the acting class, and started working in restaurants again and um, wound up opening a restaurant called 101 in Bay Ridge. Oh, uh, sure. I know, I know 101. Uh, Joe LaRocca uh, used to uh, be over there, and uh, that uh, they had one in Staten Island briefly. But uh, uh, Tim yeah, Keller. Joe LaRocca. Uh, yeah, so I'm friendly with his son, Joe. Uh, John oh, is, Joe, of course, Joe, the old right, man. Right, yeah, right. Uh, And Joe LaRocca right. is doing some uh, great work uh, with Campania now in both Brooklyn, Staten Island, and uh, uh, and elsewhere as well. He's hanging out with the likes of uh, Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson. He's a great guy. But... Um, <laughs> It's funny. I uh, we I had Tim Kelleher on the show. He was terrific, and I want to have him back. You were kind enough to put us in touch. I had no idea that it was Tim Kelleher that was the impetus for you uh, discovering a, a career in acting. Uh, it was. That's right. Now that I recall, of course, you had him on the show. He's fellow Staten Island. He's very proud of that, and um, he's a very um, in the. Uh, religious world you know he wanted to be a priest one time he went to villanova and um you know what can i say i mean i'm a believer in uh, i guess uh, god and fate and uh, he put us uh, in each other's pants that's terrific uh, that's terrific uh talking with joe ganascoli uh probably best known uh, as vito spatafora on the sopranos joe you've done some other mob pictures as well you did mickey blue eyes uh you did uh <laughs> A number of other, a number of other mob films, some well known, some not as well known. Did you find after doing a role like Vito on The Sopranos, which was so well known, watched by millions of people, did you find that you were typecast after that? That it was difficult for you to get other roles that weren't mob related? I'm just worried about being cast, uh, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about typecast. Um, listen. The whole point of, um, and you know this, but your listeners might not, uh, briefly, I played a different character the first season. And um, I was just Gino in the bakery getting trying to get some bread and a couple of pastries. And uh, Christopher, Michael Imperioli, has a problem with respect from the kid behind the counter. And um, he throws me out of the bakery and winds up kidding, uh, shooting the kid in the foot. And that was a little homage to Goodfellas, sure. his character. <clears throat> and um, they brought me back as Vito. And I did a couple of uh, seasons as Vito. And I brought the idea of making my character gay from a book I was reading by Jerry Capici called uh, Murder Machine. And one of the guys in this guy's crew was gay. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. And I brought it to the attention of one of the writers who brought it to David Chase. And it wound up being the only suggestion he ever took from a, an actor. Really? And that, and that changed my life. Um, it took them two years to do it. and um, um, But it's, uh, you know, it just opened up everything for me. And it, I wanted the challenge. Like I said, I like challenges of seeing that, uh, proving that I can act. Because playing a wise guy, I mean, where we grew up, Staten Island, Brooklyn, you see those guys, uh, you're around them, uh, you know who they are, and you see them in restaurants, and it's sort of easy to, um, you know, to play, to mimic, to uh, you, you look at them and, and know their uh, mannerisms and so on. So Right, but this whole other um, layer of a double identity, that's a, a, lot, a character with a lot more depth than your typical mob heavy. 
And that's what I wanted. And um, to me, that was a, a challenge because, uh, you know, playing a gay guy from Brooklyn, um, not easy. But, again, I was comfortable with it because being in the restaurant business in Manhattan, in New Orleans, where I had worked, um, you're around them. And so, and I worked in a gay restaurant um, that was owned by gays, uh, uh, frequented by gays. And me and Danny from the Bronx were the only two straight guys in the kitchen, <laughs> so I didn't have a problem with it. You know, you always, no, I was, you know, you, you always hear discussion. Usually, it's with respect to, <clears throat> to racial stereotypes of, oh, they couldn't make this movie today, or they couldn't put this character on television today. I, I'm wondering if if The Sopranos aired in 2022 rather than in 2005, 2006, do you think that they would have portrayed that character arc differently or do you think that your character would have faced the same amount of sort of homophobic discrimination that he did at, at the time? Uh, certainly not probably on network TV. Mm. Uh, everybody wouldn't have been an uproar but then again they would have been upset that a gay guy wasn't playing a gay guy. Right, so right. So I don't right. know how that would have went over. Um, to me that was the, the you know Thing beauty of it for me because I've seen gay characters come along on TV, and um, again, I mean they're gay, they're gay in real life, so it's really not much of a stretch for them. Um, so, uh, but I did sort of uh, open the door for uh, for it to be out in the open, so to speak. Um, uh, I don't know if uh, yeah, I think that that would have been a problem. You know, I might have been canceled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'd be one of the many these days. Uh, going back to the world of cooking for a minute. Now, uh, you and I spoke, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago at the height of the pandemic when you were going all over the uh, the area uh, providing food to first responders. And uh, a lot of very grateful people talked about how great it was not only to get food, but uh, how you would sort of buoy their spirits and how great that was. When it comes to cooking, though, that does occasionally uh, become an area where people who put forth a good faith effort and then they fail when they try to make a flambe or a, or a whatever the case may be, a, uh, uh, whatever, a difficult dish, they become demoralized and then they tend to rely on catered food and things like that. Are there any cooking tips that you can give to the intermediate or beginning cook in our audience? Maybe somebody that's... Uh, hosting a few people for dinner this weekend, and uh, they're thinking about whether they should order in or whether they should try and cook themselves. What's a good beginner's tip for a cook? Uh, I, one thing I always tell people, and, I, and um, you know, if you want to do cooking at home, really the, the most important thing is to have really a good set of knives mm. because, um, you know, trying to cut and, and slice and so on, you can't do it with, like, uh, you need a, a nice set of knives that to keep in a, in a little knife holder uh, somewhere on the uh, kitchen counter and keep and keep those sharp. Um, so that makes your uh, life while you're cooking uh, much easier. Uh, as far as, um, you know, it's, it seems like, you know, it's very confusing and this and that. And after a while you do it long enough, you see something that you like and then you make it your own by adding um, an ingredient or two. And I do that a lot myself because I'm constantly looking at, um, you know, cooking not, well, 
there's only a couple of shows that grab me um, that I I like to watch. But um, whether it be re- reading about restaurants or something, that I'm always looking to learn and try different things. And then I wind up making it my own recipe uh, with just the idea, the basic idea that comes from them. But um, you cook what you like, and um, you uh, sort of perfect it and learn, and, you know, you just watch, and, and like I did. I, you know, you watch good cooking shows, not the, you know, the, the all the competition shows. that You don't learn anything from that. But it used to be one of my favorites, and still is probably, is America's Test Kitchen, and that's always on. And they have a team of cooks. They'll try a recipe, say meatloaf, and they'll try 20 different ways, and then they'll bring you the best one that they found that works and the best way to make it, which is what I like about them. And um, that's a good cooking show I recommend to everybody. And, um, you know, you just uh, it's trial and error, and you start figuring things out, and you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it all makes sense. I saw in the Long Island press, and it's been reported elsewhere as well, that you're now doing these themed parties as a private chef. Uh, People can get together parties of 16 or more, and then you'll do sort of a dinner-themed party for them. Uh, Explain to uh, us how this this idea came about and how it's gone over so far. Yep, it's been a a really—it just sort of took off and exploded. I had did a— I had a friend that uh, said her husband was a, a big uh, soprano fan. She was having some people over. Would I come and cook? And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I I made him uh, a couple of dishes that he liked and uh, some appetizers. And she wound up putting it on a Facebook page called Tri-State Restaurant Club. And they have about 75,000 members. And it ranges from, you know, I had this experience, or I'm looking for this, or I'm going to be here. What can you recommend? Or... And she put up some pictures and said, oh, you know, Joe Gattascoli, you know, from the Spanish, come over to my house, made these dishes. Everybody, like, flipped, and they were, you know, had such a good time taking pictures, asking questions. And it just exploded from that. And then people started getting in touch with me. My husband's a big fan. My husband or my father's, uh, you know, it's anniversary, and we just want to have a get-together with friends. We're not doing it in restaurants. So I came up with a uh, three different menus. I do a huge antipasto, and not so much antipasto. I mean, it's a, a really a, a selection of my my taste is very eclectic, so I don't really do the Italian. I mean, my cooking background is French. I like all kinds of different uh, appetizers. Hmm. So hmm. it's about 18 appetizers, a choice of two pastas. Wow. And then they could do uh, chicken scarpaiello, filet mignon, or, or sea bass oreganata, lamb chops, and they decide from that, and I'm there about ten hours. Wow! Uh, and, and if people if people want to do this for a special occasion, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you to talk about this? You know, they I get a lot of direct messages on Facebook or Twitter, even Instagram. Um, so social they, media, know, social media. That's the yeah, way to go. Yeah, social media. You can just put in my name, Joe Ganascoli, you know, and they'll you'll see my email come up, and they could do it. But what makes you unique? I'm there about ten hours. I take pictures with everybody. I'll tell stories about, you know, filming. They'll ask questions. And most importantly to me is that they love the food. And I've been to about 100 of these parties. And I've uh, the reviews been on, on 
this Facebook page would have been phenomenal. Yeah. So, uh, no, I've been I'm following not- it. I, I even, uh, you did a contest, which I thought was so clever around Christmas, where you auctioned off an opportunity for one of these parties. I bought a chance, but uh, as we Met fans are used to saying, wait till next year. I didn't win this year. See, <laughs> you know what my problem is? I should have picked, I should have picked at the number of our radio station, 77. Instead, I picked uh, uh, Mariano Rivera and Butch Husky's number, number 42. Yeah, and I said when you picked forty two, I immediately, I immediately, I immediately thought of Jackie Robinson. It's true, because he was one of my idols. And um, seventy seven, um, right before I was about to draw, I so I asked my wife pick a number. She said twenty three. I said okay, Mattingly Jordan comes to mind. And I was going to say in my mind seventy seven because to me it was Phil Esposito. That was his number. Seventy seven came over from the Bruins in a big trade when I was a kid. One number seven, that was Roger Bass, so he took 77. And the guy who won wanted wanted to do a party. He was asking about it. And I and uh, he said, I see, I, you know, you're doing something on Facebook. He said, you know what, give me a number. And um, I don't know, he just came up with 77. And I, he, this guy was so genuinely surprised and happy. He couldn't believe it. And he goes, you know, I kept telling myself, you know, you're going to have the drawing, watch it. And I did it on Facebook Live. And he was so happy, and it was, I was, you know, glad. And one guy took 10 spots. Uh, a lot of people, you know, went into it. You did, and, and, and you know, I said, well, people have asked me, you know, do another one, do another one. And, you know, it gets confusing. Cause, sure. Yeah, it's a lot know, to manage. Little, uh, yeah, but uh, maybe in the fall, uh, I'm going to wait till uh, he, he's yet to come up with a date. So I am pretty booked, so thank God for that. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah. And now, it's been pretty cool. Now, as people could tell with your knowledge of uh, Phil Esposito's number, Jackie Robinson's number, et cetera, you're a pretty big uh, sports fan. Uh, I know you follow the Giants. Give me your reaction to the decision to uh, let go of the uh, head coach, Joe Judge. Yeah, that took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting it. And I guess uh, he had the, John Mara had a safe face. Uh, I guess those last two games were a debacle, mm. some of the play calling. You know, when he took his uh, position, he had his press conference, you go, wow, this is the guy. Where well, he said, we're going to play downhill. We're going to play fast. We're going to punch in the nose for 60 minutes. You're thinking, finally, we got the guy that gets it. And he was a special teams coach. And they had offsides during the kick. Uh, last play of the game, that would have that cost him the game. A couple of times that happened. You go, what happened with the, you know, the discipline? And um, mismanagement of clock, timeouts, 178 points scored in the last two minutes before the half, that was not good. So I guess, you know, new GM coming in, he wants his own coach. It would have been sort of an awkward situation. And once again, we got to start over. Seems like it's taken like forever. You know, some organizations are like perennially good. Mike Tomlin with the Steelers, their third coach in their history, uh, to believe, or third or fourth, um, I forget, third or fourth, but never had a losing record in 15 years. So um, it shouldn't be happening to an organization like the Giants, and they'll get back on track with, you know, long-suffering Giant fans. We always, for the most part, stick by our team. Mm, uh, That is uh, for sure. That's the one thing all New York area sports fans (laughs) seem to have in common. Uh, Give me a prediction on the Super Bowl, if you have one. Who's going to be in it? Oh, it would be, um, I think it would be the highest rated uh, 
Super Bowl uh, Patriots Buccaneers. I love to see that myself. But I I don't know. I I tune out. You know, as a Giant fan, the most important thing is making sure that the Cowboys and Eagles lose. <laughs> and that's all I care about. And then whoever wins and wins. You know, I feel bad for the Bills fans. They're, they're good uh, fan base. They, they could really use one. It's like the Red Sox, you know. They would do. Cubs would do. Uh, the Bills would really do. So, you know, there's a couple of uh, sentimental uh, choices. Absolutely. In there. I haven't really examined who's, less, who's left, but... Uh- Absolutely. It's going to be an interesting playoff, that's for sure. Joe Ganascoli, uh, you can reach out to him on social media if you want to inquire about one of these parties. Uh, he's also on Cameo, so if you want to send Joe Ganascoli uh, a birthday greeting or a happy anniversary greeting that he'll record and personalize, you could just search for him on Cameo. Joe, it's always a real, a real thrill to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Frankie, my brother, continued success. You're knocking him dead, and... Uh... God bless with the family and baby and all that. Thank you, and uh, people should know and you. you all, your, all, your, all your listeners, stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joe, uh, you were absolutely one of the first people to reach out with uh, warm wishes and congratulations when uh, Carmine was born, and you asked if he was named for uh, Carmine Galanti or the old, uh, the old uh, political boss in, in, the, in Car- the village. Car- Carmine DeSapio. Carmine DeSapio from Tammany, <laughs> Tammany Hall. Uh, uh, all right, uh, if you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Joe Ganiscoli, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.